0: Thank you for listening to the Big Tree Mind podcast. I'm Len Alantos and today my guest is Dr. Sejapa Mape. Dr. Sejapa Mape is a returning guest. He is a senior lecturer at the School of Architecture and Planning in Johannesburg, South Africa. This is a small introduction and it is taken from readings, research, conversations, and my own thoughts related to this topic. Dr. Mape and his family and community came from Kuruman, and this is where his father was a principal before he was born. This is where the caves are located that have become a part of his thesis and of subsequent studies and research papers. Kuruman is a small town in northern Cape province in South Africa. It is the site of the largest natural spring in the southern hemisphere. During the apartheid, many spaces were declared to be homelands or Batustans. People within these spaces were not given South African citizenship. The result of this was that the people became unable to move and travel and work and participate politically and even vote outside of these designated spaces. This is where Dr. Sejapa Mape was born and he grew up in this community. In his thesis paper, he acknowledges his past and his people and where he was born. He says, I wanna thank those who came before me, both my Bushmen and my Suwanu, and the study was really about them and honoring the difficult and often traumatizing past. So what is this conversation about today? We speak about intergenerational trauma, we speak about fear, And ability to sit in fear. We speak about the understanding of the place that he was born into. The caves are an important part of his research and understanding of himself and this is an important subject in his work. He speaks of them as a caretaker honoring and reminding his listeners and his community about the importance of place and ritual. Dr. Sejapa Mappe has come to an integrated understanding of place and ritual. This is the fundamental part of the basis of his thesis that talks about place, people, time, and ritual. He has an understanding that rituals happen in a place and that these places are an integral and sacred fundamental part of ritual. And the focus of his thesis was on the caves that were near his town. People have been coming to these caves for over 10,000 years. It is within the framework and the understanding that Dr. Mape brings to life the conversation that you're listening to. For me personally, what I hear when I'm speaking to Sajapa is a person that is really listening to himself and is connected to his community and his roots. That is a really important part of the reason why he is a featured and returning guest on this series. And for me personally, it's really important for me to be in contact and in relationship with people who are like this. And also the second part that I'm really uh, contemplating in my own life is the ability to sit in difficulty, the ability to sit in darkness and in fear. And uh, Dr. Moppe brings an interesting perspective, especially in our last episode, in which we talk about the use of fear to create change and how fear has been traditionally used in his community to create change and growth that is something that is really interesting to me and is not necessarily a part of my felt sense of how change takes place. And so I'm inviting you to listen to this and to sort of feel into history and magic and understanding of something that is bigger than us, but it is somehow coming through this human form. What we're really talking about is intergenerational trauma and importance of hope.
1: So firstly, thank you again for allowing me to share the little that I have to share uh, with you and with all the people that listen to your podcast. My wife and I decided um, last year around April that due to COVID and due to um, our university taking all our teaching online, we'll just uh, travel to the south coast of South Africa and work from there. And it was quite um, a huge um, turning point for both she and I in our lives and the kind of things that we wanted to do. Um, Because we went to the south coast of South Africa, which is called the Garden Route, which is an amazing place. You know, whenever you visit South Africa, you need to visit the garden route, it is probably one of the most beautiful places on planet earth. It's, you know, it's got lagoons and ocean and rivers and forests and anything you can imagine. We spent up until the end of last year uh, there and we just had an incredible time, you know, amidst all of the chaos. I mean, last year, sometime in South Africa, We had massive looting across the country and it was chaos, it was pandemonium. Um, But none of that stuff happened where we were. Um, We were anxious but you know we had all the rivers and the lakes and the lagoons and the mountains and the forests. So that was keeping us sane and it was an incredible um, time. And now we have moved back to the city which is uh, Johannesburg the biggest city uh, probably in Africa um which is a completely different thing but we come with a new sense of life you know from our time there
0: did you find yourself learning something about yourself or creating or listening mm-hmm. to different parts of yourselves when you were away
1: quite a significant thing happened in that regard for me while I was there, um, you know, for a really long time, um, I've been researching, um, the First Nation people in my country who, um, inhabited the land, even the land I was at at the time, uh, for thousands of years, right? They, they, they are descendants of the hunter gatherers that were here thousands of years ago. Um, and. You know for a long time I was trying to connect with the worldview that you know we pick up of them from the rock art and the rock paintings and the kind of archaeology that's left behind and you know I felt like as a, um, as a South African um, it was important for me particularly because we are now you know um, past the kind of colonial era or we're trying to get past the colonial era it was important for me to connect with that stuff but you know what what happened was that I began to have a lot of conflict because you know when you are born in a place like South Africa you actually as a person who's an indigenous person you actually are often conflicted by competing worldviews you know so on the one hand there's the indigenous worldview on the other hand there's Christianity and then there's a kind of postmodern or modern worldview um, which is really like you know what you learn at school and it's scientific and that sort of thing and you know this whole thing of decolonization you know especially the way it's um given to us in academic circles, it's as if it strips away the Christianity part of what we are. And, you know, the sad thing is, it's almost as if uh, people like myself, you know, are being told how to decolonize themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the ways is that you're not authentic enough if you're not Christian, if you're a Christian, you're not authentic enough. You have to be like the First Nation people who walked the lands a long time ago. So this thing had always been a conflict for me. Um, And, you know, when I was there, I prayed. And there was this prayer where I was, I prayed that the spirit of the land that I was in should visit me. And it did, right? And it was quite a terrifying experience. You know, it was quite a difficult, terrifying experience. And, you know, one of the things that happened is that um, in a dream, um, the serpent that is, you know, I, I kind of saw it as belonging to the lagoon, basically came and told me that it was going to take my son away from me, it was going to eat him, you know. And So, so obviously that was very frightening at night and whatever. And when I woke up, I had to sort of process all of this. And in processing it, because I've done a lot of research on this, you know, for me, it immediately made, you know, the, the, the motif that I went to as a reference, the snake was a motif that represented the cosmos for the indigenous people, you know, and it was, you know, something that was potentially going to take your children or take you or, you know, um, swallow you up, um, lots of, lots of those kind of, um, ideas. So I'm getting to my point. At some point I realized that, you know, I needed to inhabit a framework that was going to help me overcome the, the kind of terror that now I took on. Because, you know, what, what was around me like nature, the lagoon, the mountains, the, the forests, everything was, you know, like I said, you know, when people, especially my colleagues talk about, you know, decolonization, whatever, they'd say things like you must go back to nature, go back to the wild, go back to whatever. But then suddenly when I inhabited that, it became, and this is similar to the conversation we had last time, it became a very dangerous thing. And the big question was, how does one protect themselves from that? I remembered stories that I was told when I was younger. And, you know, people used to go visit this snake at the at caves in my hometown. and. You know, for a long time, that's all I saw that they went to visit these snakes at these caves, this mythical snake, which represents the cosmos, which is this dangerous deity, right? For a long time, that's all I thought about that they visit this creature and it's in this dark cave. And for the first time, um, because I was working on a digital model of that particular cave, I asked one of the guys who I'm working with to put a candle in the model. And when he put a candle in the model, like an um, artificial light, it created this small light in this dark space, incredibly small light in this huge dark space. And immediately I recognized that there's a kind of tool that people use when they are confronted by this gigantic, terrifying, you know, fear of everything, of the cosmos, of the danger, the potential to take your children away, the small light. Mm -hmm. And that completely changed my life. I suddenly realized what the word hope means and faith. And you know, the grannies in my hometown, I I never understood why they would go to this terrifying place with little candles. And they'd go and they put these tiny little candles, red and blue colored candles, And they would light them at night in this incredibly dark space. And it immediately made sense to me. And they'd always known this, that amidst the darkness and amidst the terror and the fear, there is this light of hope. I've been studying the darkness for a very long time. My drawings, the spaces that I visit. And you know, the irony is that I would go to these caves during the day. You enter the cave and it's quite dark, you come out, you know, and you're in the sun. But I'd never visited them at night, right, just because of safety and all kinds of other reasons. But until we created um, a virtual model of the space, then we could simulate night, uh, you know, how it is at night. And we could then put this little candle in the space um, at night, and suddenly you realize how all pervasive the darkness becomes even more at night because, you know, when you visit it at day, there is some light that comes from the outside. But at night, there are no stars, there's nothing, and it's totally quiet. Yet people choose to go into the space and light small little candles in this very space. And you see, it's almost as if they just had this incredible knowledge or wisdom about what hope is you know and i suppose because you know we're going through covid and everything that's happening in the world people may easily lose sight of that but these practitioners deliberately went to places that had an all-consuming darkness and in their pockets they had these little candles And it doesn't matter how all-consuming the darkness is, the moment you light the candle, it's lit, you know, there is light in that darkness, Mm -hmm. that darkness cannot put out the light. Mm -hmm. And, you know, now, what that has done for me is that it has consolidated these kind of schisms that were being caused by the, you know, the those who proclaim decolonization, but, you know, try and force us to deny, you know, the Christianity that they themselves brought onto our coast. Mm-hmm. It allowed that to have a place, you know, in my, in my worldview, because where I come from, people are very much Christian, yet still practicing indigenous uh, cultures, very much so. Um. And so you know, light in Christianity has many, many, there's like a lot that's been said there. But you know, there's no way in Christian practice where people deliberately went to a cave that's supposed to have the serpent deity and visit that cave with small candles. So that's what comes from the indigenous knowledge practices and how these things have fused together. And create something that's quite powerful. So so now in COVID, I believe people really need to understand this a bit better.
0: In our last conversation, we were talking about rituals and the use of fear. Mm. The use of fear to sort of create change, to, mm. to, to move something forward or or kind of to teach something. And you know, I've been I've been thinking about that question a lot. I wanna share what I think about it, but I'm just wondering if you have come to any thoughts about this.
1: I have. <laughs> I have. So, you know, one of my um experiences when I was a teenager that kind of catapulted me into thinking about a lot of these things. Um, I had a very terrifying experience when I was a teenager. I won't get into it too much, but you know, it was very dark. And when it happened and for a very long time, I just thought, you know, that was the beginning of the downfall of my life. But in actual fact, in hindsight, I realized that was the beginning of an awakening in my life. And, you know, A lot of people in my community who haven't gone through a similar kind of awakening are still trapped by a lot of dark forces, let's call them dark forces, you know, um, you know, broken relationships, broken families, mistrust, um, you know, fear, lots of negative forces. And now, in hindsight, I realize that had it not been for that terrifying experience, which was almost like a lifting of a veil for me to see what was happening around my community. My community at the time, you know, the, we were like a community that before I was born were relocated forcibly our previous um, village or, or home was destroyed. And we were like, um, moved into a kind of fascist camp, um, by the apartheid, um, uh, government. And it caused a lot of socio psychological traumas. You know, our childhood memories, our fond childhood memories were in this, what I call apartheid concentration camp. We were born in this space. It was mm. incredibly fascist, right? And in my teens. I kind of woke up to this and it was terrifying to recognize what was happening around me. Um, And I thought it was just the most terrible thing that could ever happen. Now, particularly subsequent to learning about this thing called hope in the way I've seen it, I'm seeing that by virtue of me having crawled out of that pit, crawled out of it, you know, there's actually a ray of hope there's a way that perhaps others from my community can crawl out as well ultimately you know what we're really looking for is hope we're looking for 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 joy we're looking for peace we're looking for love ultimately and you know it mm. but but what i do see is that it was a very necessary step i mean if you if you were surrounded by monsters but you were like so conditioned to assume that that's the normal life and you suddenly woke up and recognized you were surrounded by monsters, you'd be terrified in that moment, right? But you'd be in a better position to run away than the one who doesn't even see that they're surrounded by monsters. Mm. So you, there's no way you are going to escape the monsters without recognizing that they're there, which propels you to get out.
0: I was actually reading this book that has to do with grief and uh, rituals that are used to support grief and back in the days people would come together at a certain time of the day and people would have some sort of space to express their sadness or to dance or to you know sing for someone that might be dying or might be sick and you know now we have happy hour And this community orientation towards holding space for our grief has been lost. When somebody dies, even up until as far as I've been alive, you know, my grandma used to wear all black when my grandpa died for years. You know, when somebody would die, you would know that a person was mourning that they were in grief, and that this was something that was going to take time. And there was a sense of something like they were living in a different way, that there was something major happening for them, right? and 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 the community respected that. They could see that, and there was kind of some space given to that. And these days we are sort of like, back to work on Monday. And so you, you, you are giving it a really sweet context for me by talking about this light and this hope when we can open our heart up after grief, like that feeling of having something so scary and so difficult happen. And then you make that decision to live after that, to awaken after that.
1: We're talking about generations of traumas. And, you know, when you begin to sit and try and unpack and try and deal with that, you realize that, and, and, you know, when when you look at how people sort of just don't go there, you realize how much there is to kind of deal with, you know. And so these drawings that I'm doing, I'm trying to capture is, you know, something that vividly expresses the kind of things that are happening to people, the emotions. And I'm drawing on, you know, the indigenous knowledge systems in my home, where when they did the rock art, they basically try and represent the spirit realm and, you know, In architecture we can easily sort of do a drawing of a place, you know, in a very matter-of-fact way with, you know, clean dimensions and it kind of all looks very rational. But then things could be happening in that place that are, you know, momentous, like incredible things could be happening in that place, in that home. So say, for example, somebody gave you an architectural drawing of the Nazi concentration camps, you know. If you saw the drawing, you wouldn't, you know, or there's another famous drawing of the slave ship um, that like had, um, you know, thousands and thousands or hundreds rather of uh, slaves that were being taken to, I think to Britain, it's called the Brooks slave ship. And it has all these people packed in it. But when you look at the, the, the drawing, it's just matter of fact, you know, they just kind of, packing people inside there and you don't kind of see the underlying um evil you know you don't sense it at all you kind of just see it as a diagram like you see diagrams of segmented frogs in biology or something Mm -hmm. you know and so the aim of what i was doing in the drawings was to illustrate the underlying forces particularly in the case of the drawings that i'm showing the one i sent you is of um, a group of women performing an exorcism, trying to pull a spirit out of a young boy. And this is an actual place um, back home. Um, the owner of that space asked me to build an actual church for her. Currently, you know, it's a shack that they're doing this in. Um, and if you just see this, the shack, it's very unassuming. But that shack, that tiny little shack, is fighting hundreds of years of trauma, you know. And those old little unassuming women are fighting hundreds of years of trauma that's in the body, you know. And that's what I'm trying to illustrate through the drawings.
0: I remember being in Vietnam and, and going to places that, you know, you enter the room and you immediately feel like it is time for me to exit this room. It makes me curious about what you feel when you're in these places, what you, what you, what you sense with your body and how, how can you even translate that into a, into art or into a drawing?
1: It started when I did the drawings of the caves and there I was trying to express the terror but that terror was part of a ritual process right
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, and and you know before colonialism or you know early in the colonial era people still had ways of articulating those things they'd use narratives myths stories and even drawings to kind of capture the forces that were in a battle with the community you know mm-hmm. They were having battles, they were having wars, they were having fights with unseen forces. And, you know, often when I talk about unseen forces, people immediately kind of go into thinking about superstition as if, you know, we send each other demonic forces through GPS or Bluetooth, you know, they kind of, and and that's like a, a way of not seeing how these these things play themselves out. Like I'm saying... You know, it cannot just be a coincidence that three generations of women have, you know, um, infant infant mortality cases, alcoholism, and, you know, premature death. Mm -hmm. Those are the forces we're talking about here. Right. Right. And so in indigenous art, they had ways of articulating these things. You know, but because of modernity, you know, we we yes, we might pathologize it, and we might, you know, talk about the symptoms and whatever. But you know, how do you connect a community emotionally, uh, in 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 an embodied way, the entire being, with these um, forces that they are up against? You know, if 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 I now go to my home and we say we need to intervene what do we say what's the conversation what are we actually fighting against here what do we intervene is there a target is there something that we're saying is the cause of whatever ill you know fate that we're seeing around us generationally and you know that's why people would say it's a it's a snake or it's a scorpion or 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 it's it's some f- they'd give it a name and they'd give it a body and they would identify it somehow so that, you know, we know what we're talking about. Right. So it's no longer just some sort of abstract amorphous uh, situation because, you know, three generations of infant mortality can just be seen as a situation. And it really is important for me to talk to you, um, you know, to for both of us to kind of, look at this collectively, together, in collaboration, and think through this.
0: Yeah, I, I, I mean, I feel um, it's hard for me to find the right words right now to express what I'm feeling. I have questions, I have questions around. And just from what I've seen, you know, people attending ceremonies and doing sort of these deep, deep ceremonies. Uh, with shamans uh, to work through their own pain, but sort of on their own, sort of hidden sort of I have to take care of my stuff. like yes, you're in a room with other people and there's other people there, but you're going through that sort of ancestral pain and the actual the surgery of it on your own, right and when you say this question of what it would be like, what kind of questions can we put, what kind of interventions could we have, it seems to me that you would need to have a whole bunch of people who are willing to sit under a tree and be together in all of this, including the person who who caused the harm. And I wonder about that. I I, I People have to be willing to sit together. To feel together.
1: I mean, like I said, it's taken me 20 years. And look, I'm not saying that I'm completely healed, but at least I can see it now, you know. And the drawings for me are therapeutic in the sense that they helped to articulate these things. Part of the reason why I do my drawings is that often when you talk about being inspired by indigenous indigenous knowledge. You know, I know that there are indigenous practitioners of all sorts, whether they are architects or therapists, they often draw on what they, what is tra- what has happened traditionally. And I, I say that, you know, when the first person who came up with that practice 2000 years ago, came up with that practice or, you know, added the nuance, they were exercising their creativity. So healing practices can also be created, we can create things, you know, like, for example, these drawings I'm doing and using them to discuss traumas with my family, we can create tools, and so we need to think about that, both you and I, we need to maybe do that together.
0: If you haven't already, please feel free to check out my current offerings at BigTreeMind.com and my psychotherapy practice information at Lanolontos.com.